Starcade 95 World Cup of Wrestling took place December 27, 1995 at the Nashville Municipal Auditorium in Nashville, Tennessee. It had 8,200 in attendance and did a .36 buy rate, which amounts to about 113,314 buys. Your commentators for this are Tony Schiavone, Bobby Heenan, and Dusty Rhodes. Matt, your dream has come true, sir. For now, at least for a few years, we are going to be done with 1995. This will be our last 1995 event. How excited are you? Oh, thank God. (laughs) (laughs) I got to say, you know, I had forgotten a lot about how 1995 was. These last few shows have been a chore to get through, and I'm very glad it's coming to an end as well. Let's talk about Starcade the event, because... This is our first chance to talk about Starcade, and it was a huge part of me growing up, was this particular event. It was called the Granddaddy of Them All, which Tony Schiavone outlines in this event. And it was a concept, I believe, come up with by Dusty Rhodes. And for the first six years, five, six years, it was a standard wrestling event. You had all your matches and everything else. But there were times in its run that it did different things. Things And I'm not sure if you have your granddaddy of them all. Vince has done it with WrestleMania. He did the tournament for the championship at four. But this concept of doing different things like, for example, 1989, Future Shock, was the quote-unquote Iron Man of wrestling. And they'd have these guys face off against each other for a set of points. And when the points were tallied at the end, that's that was the winner of the entire event. There was one for singles and there was one for tag teams. And we're not going to get to this event for a few years, but I remember there was a guy coming up around that time in WCW by the name of the Great Muda. He was something so ahead of his time, things that would not come around for another six, seven years he was doing. And he was pretty much undefeated. I mean, Sting did beat him for the U.S. title in very controversial circumstances after Muda himself had taken the title away from him. But in this event, Matt, Ric Flair beats him in like three minutes, and Muda gets no points throughout the course of that entire event and pretty much kills his entire push. Flash forward to 91, we have the start of Battle Bowl, which is another weird concept I believe also come up with by the one and only Dusty Rhodes, where wrestlers kayfabe were drawn at random to team up against each other until the very end when they had a Battle Royal, and the same thing was done in 92. Matt, is it a good idea to take your huge event and do different things with it like they did in those instances and in this instance in 1995? I don't think it's always a bad thing because it helps keep things refreshed and it's no different than what Vince was doing. Look at WrestleMania. You know, the first one was a one of its kind type of event at the time and then the next year they ran it in three separate locations. Each one had a different main event. Then the third one, they go to the Silver Dome. It was built around the Hogan-Andre thing. And every year, they'd add something different, whether it was a ladder match or dual main events, the disaster that was WrestleMania 9. But for WCW, this was a good opportunity with this World Cup concept to both showcase the deep talent roster they had at the time, and it was only going to get even deeper in the couple years that would follow, and showcase some talent that a lot of casual viewers would not see. Because if WCW fans were going to order one show throughout the year, 
it would most likely be the one that they advertise as the biggest one of them all. And look, after the disaster that was Starcade 94, and I use that word very loosely, <laughs> that saw the main events of your fucking company being Hulk Hogan versus Brutus the Barber Beefcake for the WCW title, I think there was nowhere to go but up. So taking this concept is something you agree with? Yeah, I would endorse it. And it was advertised. It's a tremendous part of the show. But it's also telling that that was not the storyline or the culmination of that was not what closed off the show. So I think that's kind of telling that they knew we can use this to build the show around, but we're still going to put our own promotion at the forefront. You can tell that... You know, me, me and you have had questions as we've been going through this, is when did Bischoff really become involved in the booking of the show? This was a Bischoff concept where he wanted better relations with the NGPW, which is the Japan Wrestling Federation. And he built this storyline around that where they were invading, I guess is what you could say. And you can tell at this point he really is planting the seeds for what we get in the next year with the NWO, isn't he? Planting is being kind. More like he walked into a Lowe's garden shop and just stole a potted plant. <laughs> uh, that, that's a more appropriate analogy. Fair enough. So the beginning here, we got a big stand-up with Shivani and Bobby Heenan and Rhodes. And I got to tell you, no matter how bad any of these shows have been, and we've had some duds as we've gone over in the last few months, this broadcast team is always entertaining to me, and this show is no exception. Dusty Rhodes is really on one on this show, isn't he? <laughs> and I think this is because, as you alluded to, this concept is kind of his baby his brain trust, so I could see why he put his passion more so into this than he'd do in some other shows, because he'll be calling a lot of WCW going forward. All right, so our first match of the night, Juice and Thunder Liger with Sonny Ono is taking on Chris Benoit. Oh, man, another one of these Benoit matches. So these two Yeah, and th this was a good way to open up the show, and even though it's WCW versus Japan, Benoit did have some extensive background in Japan. You know, I think it was Pegasus Kid was his name mm -hmm. when he was working that promotion. So I like having him in this tournament, uh, if you want to call it that. And, you know, Liger, decade plus later, would still be wrestling. Yeah. Yeah, Liger, at this he point... He came back from a freaking brain tumor. Mm, unbelievable. And this is a guy, if we'll get to it eventually, in 92, he had what a lot of people call the match of the year, maybe the match of a few years, where Juice and Dunderlager took on Brian Pillman in one of the best matches I've ever seen. Uh, it was at Super Bowl 92, just a fantastic match. And I didn't realize that he would wrestle, for, you said, for a decade later? Yeah, because yeah, I remember at Down for Glory, which was TNA's biggest show of the year. I think it was in 05, he wrestled Samoa Joe. Unbelievable. Oh, and a really good match. Always entertaining, and I love that outfit of his, too. Those horns are oh, really, really cool. So the match starts off. They trade holes and takedowns until we go to the floor. Liger does somersault plancha off the apron, which is a cool move. They go back in the ring, and Liger gives Benoit a head scissors and, and a rolling kick. Benoit then hits a tilt-a-whirl backbreaker, but we get Liger doing more takedowns. 
Then Benoit hits some suplexes and clotheslines before he gets the Lion Tamer on. Liger says two can play at this game, and he puts Benoit on a surfboard stretch and a camel clutch. This is a match that has some high spots. It also has some rest holds, but I think all of it is really drawn up pretty well, don't you? You get to see, I, I think, the versatility of these two guys, because for all the stuff you know you could say about Benoit, as we talked about last time, he was sort of a hybrid of a lot of different styles. And so was Liger. You know, Liger, you know, with that outfit, you would associate him more with a luchador, you know, mm-hmm. high-flying type of in-ring product. But he could work with someone like Benoit, who was more reliant on, you know, a, a more physical type of wrestling, even though he was prominent for using the flying headbutt and a couple of other relatively high-risk maneuvers. But for a 10-minute match, you know, they incorporate almost everything. So I really don't think you could have asked for, on this show, maybe outside of one more, a better way to kick it off. Benoit turns this camel clutch into an, an electric chair drop before they go through a set of reverse tombstones. Benoit then hits a superplex, but then he misses a flying headbutt. Liger takes advantage with a powerbomb and a brain buster. Benoit recovers from this and performs some rolling German suplexes, which kind of becomes his mantra throughout the rest of his career. And then he also returns the powerbomb. But here's that pesky Kevin Sullivan, your favorite bud from Boston, Matt. He oh boy, yeah, this uh, <laughs> this gets a little bit. This gets even worse. This this breaks the walls of kayfabe between these two in like a year from now. Oh my god! I mean, this goes on for about a year and a half, almost two years. But here's the start of it. And Kevin Sullivan's here not because of Benoit, but he has a beef with Brian Pillman and and the Horseman because Benoit had just become a Horseman. So here's Sullivan. He's distracting Chris Benoit. And then as he's distracted, here comes Liger to pin Benoit with a hurricanrana at 10 minutes, 29 seconds. Matt, what do you think of this match? Yeah, then Jimmy Hart's also out there. Oh, yeah. Oh, he's here so much of this show. Yeah, like even though his BFF Hulk Hogan is not on the show, he makes mm-hmm. he makes up in appearances. I'm not going to call the finish sloppy, but I think this could have done without any kind of interference. Because it's unfortunate what it led to in multiple assets, both within in-ring product and obviously behind the scenes. I do like that New Japan is first on the board. Give props to the, the I guess, the invading promotion or the, the away team, if you will. Uh, that was pretty good stuff. I agree. I like this match a lot. Even the finish, you know. I mean, this is stuff that Nitro has been setting up. And we are carrying over a storyline which is good. We're, t- we're advancing Japan in the standings, as you said, but we're also advancing a storyline, and I think that's a really good use of this match's time. And again, all the spots are good. Uh, this was a pretty good opening match. I agree with you. What's not very good, Matt, is the very next segment because we get an interview with Eddie Guerrero, and <laughs> this is a guy who would go on to have some pretty good promos throughout his career, but him as the white meat baby face saying he's going to give it his all as Gene Orkelin saying that he watched Eddie do push-ups and knows that he's ready for this. I mean, what the hell's going on here? So Eddie Guerrero had the same problem, ironically, that Jericho had. Uh, you know, the two vanilla midgets, <laughs> uh, as Captain Nash would call them. Yeah. That they started out as the just bland baby faces that were on the smaller side. So they played up the underdog route, but that's really all they had uh, for as you know talented as they both are and were, especially at this time. And I think they needed a heel turn to actually advance their careers because this Eddie would become not just a babyface but a top babyface 
once he made his way to the WWE and became a main eventer, but he had to undergo a lot of character stuff for him to get to that point. Interesting to watch this in hindsight, but it's, uh, yeah, it's about as vanilla as you could get for just a pump-up babyface promo. Yeah. Our next match is Koji Kanamoto with Sonny Ono versus Alex Wright. So we start off, they're grappling, and they're trading some holds as Koji uses some takedowns and attacks Alex Wright's leg. First of all, what do you think about Alex Wright? Have we gone over this yet? I don't think we have. Okay, go ahead. It's funny, when I think of him, I think of Disco Inferno (laughs) uh, side by side. That's kind of inescapable. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was what he was. I'm sort of indifferent to his overall career. Like he's for all the people that WCW had in their heyday. If you remove him from the equation, I don't think it changes the outcome, no matter no matter what's happened. Yeah, I agree with that. This was a guy who was actually recommended to Bischoff, believe it or not, by Ric Flair. Ric Flair really took a liking to this kid. They brought him in, and I think he was 18, 19 years old when they brought him in, and he's doing these dances when he comes down to the ring. I mean, there's no way you're going to get over with an, with a gimmick like that. You'll have some girls cheering, but we're in the South, and a lot of guys are at these shows, and they turned against him pretty quickly. But I have nothing against the guy's work. I think he looks great. You know, he, he's a good-looking kid, and his work is really good, but... He just had a hard time getting over because of that gimmick. And by the time he turned heel when he turns into Berlin a few years from this, is it's kind of too late for him. But uh, in the beginning, I thought he could have worked if they would have just given him a better gimmick. So Alex Wright, he's answering these takedowns with some uppercuts until they spill over the rope and he hits a crossbody. Wright then dives into Koji, but he lets him recover. And then Koji answers with some real stiff kicks, and he drop kicks Wright out of the ring. He nails Wright with a slingshot crossbody, but Alex Wright reverses Koji into the rail. They meet at the apron where Koji reverses a suplex. He turns it into a tiger suplex and lands a moonsault. Koji stops the pin, though, so Alex recovers and uses a German suplex. He then hits a slingshot splash, and then both men take turns drop-kicking each other out of the air, which, that was a weird spot. <laughs> Alex- it gets worse later on, like, the, the drop kicks in this match, because there's a part where he, he hits him with a drop kick, but he doesn't cover him. Yeah, mm-hmm. Wright continues with a Michel drop kick and a superplex. That's your spot there, Matt. But then Koji catches Alex Wright with a snake eyes and wins with a jackknife pin at 11 minutes, 44 seconds, which makes the NGPW lead 2 nothing. What do you think, Matt? Not, not as good as the first match, but perfectly serviceable. Nor- and we've talked a lot on these pay-per-views that second match duds. Yeah. This kind of breaks that, bucks that trend for, for the first time in, in a considerable period. Some of this is pretty stiff, but you still got, you know, some acrobatic stuff and relatively clean, I mean, about as clean of a finish you can get. I mean, he kind of beat him because he dropped him face first on the turnbuckle and to capitalize, so solid. Definitely didn't kill the crowd like some of these other pay-per-view second matches. I agree. This was solid work and a bit more stiff than I'm used to Alex Wright matches being. You know, you kind of took my note. And you're right. It didn't kill the crowd, but I don't think the crowd really cares about this World Series of wrestling. You know, I think they're just kind of going for these matches here. Especially not with these guys. No. No, you have two guys representing the other, which, you know, let's face it, they don't really have much heat going on here. I mean, the announcers are trying to pull, uh, are trying to put all this over. Dusty Rhodes, and in the very next segment, he's comparing it to World Series. And we're like, well, we're going to have the big guns coming up in the next few matches, so we still have a chance. We're down 2-0. Yeah, they're saying you got to win four of the next five. Yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. And Dusty Rhodes is about to start talking about the 04 Red Sox, even though it's 10 years beforehand. By the way, Bobby Heenan is fantastic on this event. You know, at one point during this, he says how Japan owns everything. So, of course, they're going to be taking this event as well. Great stuff from Heenan here. Got both flags. Both flags. <laughs> Yeah. And it should be said, we haven't really been talking about the Nitros, but at, at this point, they're kind of using Heenan to kind of hype up Japan as the heel faction because Heenan's the heel announcer. And so we're going to show Japan's the heel by showing the heel announcer getting behind them and investing in them. And Sonny Ono is actually, he's been friends with Derek Bischoff since Bischoff was way young. I guess Bischoff went to the same dojo as him or took lessons from him, karate lessons from him or something. And they, they took a real liking to each other and they've been friends ever since. You know, this is a long relationship, and it's kind of funny that Bischoff is helping booking at this point, and he's kind of made Sonny Ono a prominent part of the of the federation. And he continued to do it for the years to come. Mm-hmm. So our next match, your buddy, Matt, Lex Luger. He's with Jimmy Hart, and he takes on Masahiro Chono, who, again, is with Sonny Ono. Masahiro Chono is an interesting one because I remember some good matches with him and Great Muda a few years before this. Uh, he had a real dud of a match with Rick Rude. At a Halloween Havoc, I believe, a few years before this as well. But he's been around in the Federation. Yep, and uh, one thing's clear. Lex Luger is not the great Muda. (laughs) (laughs) Great commentary on your part, my friend. So the match is starting off. Luger's using some headlocks and shoulder blocks, and then he presses Chono over his head. Masahiro Chono answers with some forearms and kicks, but Luger's regrouping. He then teases a test of strength before he rams Chono into the corners. Masahiro Chono rallies with a suplex, and he hits him with some more kicks. He also uses a sleeper hold and puts Lex Luger in the STF, which was his finishing move. Luger reaches the ropes, so Chono hits him with a mafia kick. He then attempts a flying axe handle, but Luger elbows him out of the air, and then he puts Chono in the torture rack and makes him submit at 6 minutes, 41 seconds. At least it didn't go 10, right? Kept it short, and I can't critique this too hard because the crowd was really into Lex Luger mm-hmm. and I'm not going to be someone who just shits on the guy just to be that person. If the if the crowd's into it, then I, I'm not going to be too harsh. Crowd is into it. And again, the shorter you keep Luger matches, the better, you know, unless he's in there working with Ric Flair, he, he doesn't work in the longer match. So I'm glad that they kept it short and sweet here, and they gave WCW a victory. Now NGPW, NJPW leads 2-1. to one. We didn't have Mean Gene with Sting, and another just weird promo. I, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of Sting. I've said it over and over. But this whole thing of the quote-unquote love triangle between him, Macho Man, and Hogan, and how Luger fixes into it. I love the Luger-Sting storyline. I've always said that, but... This promo is just not the best way to use Sting. I don't like Sting in this promo. What about you? Yeah, you mean the the, the Luger-Sting story that never fucking ended? I love that storyline. It did end. Oh, By God. the time the NWO came around, it, it abruptly ended. Uh, kept, no, but it kept going. Like, there were some... They had more matches, like, well after the NWO formed. Well, yeah, years later. It's funny that Sting was the most over he ever became when he stopped talking. Yeah, it's interesting. Not that he was bad at promos. Like, he's not... He's not Lex Luger in that regard, but I think it was just hard for him to shake that. And part of this is WCW. They wanted him to be their Hogan mm-hmm. until Hogan actually got there. You know, the bleach blonde surfer from California, all-American babyface, but that's really all he had for himself 
for a considerable portion of his career. Well, if we want to go deep in the weeds here, the way Sting got over was Dusty Rhodes really took a liking to him, and he booked him in a match with Flair back at the first Clash of Champions, which we'll eventually get to. And he went 45 minutes with Flair in that match, and it was a phenomenal match. And it proved that Sting could hang with Flair, and Flair from that point did say, I want to drop the belt to him eventually, which he did a couple years later. But he lived off that for quite a while. And you're right, this was the era of Sting I'm not a huge fan of. I didn't like when he dyed his hair brown. He got smaller. He's way smaller than he was back in 88 at this point. He's trying to do little things to change the character, but the character itself didn't really change until you're right. They turned it into the Crow Sting, and we'll get to that soon enough. Our next match, Johnny B. Bad with Kimberly takes on Masa Saito with, you guessed it, Sonny Ono. So the match starts off. Saito takes Bad to the mat with some holds before they start trading chops. Hey, at least Johnny B. Bad isn't in the opening match, right? <laughs> we have him. Well, there's also some really bad uh, pre-Bell promo work, mostly from Kimberly. Oh, yes. Where there's a comment about it not being a Japanese bathhouse. Uh-huh. Is, oh, yeah, that's really sensitive. She was great to look at. I mean, she got involved in some good storylines down the road, but this is not a great way to start this match. Oh, wait till she gets with the booty man, my friend. <laughs> you think we've seen WrestleCrap yet? Wait until we get to March. You're going to wish for this Kimberly when we get there. Again, one of my favorite quotes about Kimberly is, obviously, DDP was great at selling because he was able to nail Kimberly. <laughs> Yeah, and, and that keep that in mind when he jumped ship in 2001. We're going to come back to that conversation. Oh, yes, we are. He's, young, he's married to Kimberly. He's got stuff the Undertaker's wife. <laughs> so these chops and uh, holds, they grow in intensity until Saito hits Johnny B-Bad in the throat. Ono also finally gets involved. He's choking Johnny B-Bad with his flag, and Saito gives Bad a Saito suplex. He then chokes Johnny B. Bad and Ono interferes some more. Bad responds with a knee lift and a flying axe handle. He then uses a flying sunset flip, but it only gets a two count. Bad continues until Ono jumps on the apron. He grabs Sonny Ono, and so Saito attacks him. But Saito dumps Bad over the ropes, and the referee calls for a disqualification at 5 minutes 52 seconds. And we're tied at 2-2. Two to two. Matt, what do you think of this match? It's a good thing it only went 6 minutes, because there's really nothing of note. That happens in it. And it's definitely the flattest match on the show if you listen to the crowd. And anytime WCW did DQ finishes, which they'll, they've done a lot and will continue to do, they were always so quick in these matches to ring the bell for the slightest egregious in the rules. But keep that in mind years down the road where people would have to do far more things and no bell is rung. <laughs> and Bischoff has been on the record and on his podcast as saying WCW was good at a lot of things. One thing they weren't good at was finishes, you know, and he will take. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wait till two years from now. Yeah, definitely. And you're right. This wasn't a great finish, but I disagree with you about this match. I thought this match was very good. I thought it could have gone longer. I, th- I thought it was telling a good story and it kind of abruptly ended. But you're right. The crowd wasn't really into it. They kind of read into it. And we got to get a lot of these matches in on a show that's under three hours. So they kind of ended it sooner than later. I could have used a little bit of later. I'm pretty sure a chunk of this match got cut in favor of something else on this show. Probably. What? 
you wanted more time for the Luger promo that we get next? <laughs> is that what they no, cut it for? I, I think uh, I think a certain someone on their show said I need to go thirty minutes. No, I, I I get what you're saying. I know what you're saying. I was just making a Luger joke there. No, the the, the best the best Luger is a silent Luger. <laughs> well, Luger's next as he's being interviewed by Mean Gene Oakland, him and Jimmy Hart. Jimmy Hart is all over this fucking show. And Luger's saying that he's going to win the triangle match, and if he gets in with Sting, may the best man win. I like Luger in this because he wasn't using cue cards. That was different from him. But other than that, <laughs> the shorter the promo, the better. So our next match is Sanjiro Otani with Sonny Ono versus Eddie Guerrero. Otani is taking Eddie down by the hair and locks him in some holds. They reverse through some mat wrestling until Otani regroups. Eddie nails him with a slingshot senton and puts Otani in a Boston Crab. He reaches the rope, so Eddie uses a powerbomb and a brainbuster. But Otani rallies and hits some springboard moves in and out of the ring. Otani returns to Matt Holds until Eddie counters with a suplex. Otani answers with a springboard wheel kick, which was a cool kick. I like the look of that kick. They fight to the top rope, where Eddie performs a super Frankensteiner. He follows with a splash mountain bomb. I loved that move. Oh, that was a great move. That that just looks like a sick bump, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, that really should have been his finisher. It really should have been. You're right. You know, the frog splash, I know that's tradition. Mm-hmm. But basically like a sit-out razor's edge. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's why he stopped doing it when Scott Hall had it. Yeah, you're right. Good point. They fight in and out of the ring until Otani reverses an apron suplex. Otani open, busts open his nose at this point. Like, it's really bleeding here. Yeah, they kept going. Like, they didn't yeah. stop it up. Yeah. Both men reverse through a series of pin attempts until Otani gets the three count at 13 minutes, 43 seconds. And now MJPW leads WCW 3-2. to two. I thought this was another pretty good match. Probably the match of the night at, at this point. I, I think that, you know, this was just Eddie showing what he was capable of, as he always was. I mean, he was late 20s at this point, so he's still a young guy. Mm-hmm. Just getting introduced on a, on a more wide circuit, because... You know, he flashed in w, uh, ECW a little bit before this. You know, a lot of high-flying stuff, a lot of a lot of good suplex attempts. Ending is kind of eh, but everything else is great. My highlight of this match was Dusty Rose referencing rickshaws during it. <laughs> Such a dated reference now. It really is. Speaking of dated, we get Mean Gene Okerlund with Randy Savage. Uh, it's sad to think both of these gentlemen aren't with us anymore. Well, it's, you look at all the people on the show, like those two are gone. Eddie, Benoit. A lot of people on the, but yet somehow Ric Flair has outlived all of them. He's still alive and kicking. Mean Gene says that he talked to Hogan on the phone, and Savage asked what he said. And Gene says that Hogan inquired about Randy's state of mind. Savage says, "Tell him I'm in the zone. He knows what the zone's all about." <laughs> Randy Savage yeah, was a different I, individual. We started, we're gonna get that danger zone sound clip, uh, but I don't, I don't know what exactly that, what, what promo that's from. So I'm, anytime he talks, I'm waiting for it from here on out. <laughs> <laughs> Our next match, Macho Man Randy Savage versus Hiroshi Tenzon, of course, with Sonny Ono. So they're grappling around the ring until the ref separates them, and then Tenzon nails Randy Savage with some chops and kicks. He uses some forearms and some clotheslines. Savage then rams Tenzon into the corner, but he shakes off the attack in very amusing fashion. Savage then uses a eye rake. But Tenzon lands a wheel kick. He continues attacking Savage with headbutts and chops until they go to the floor. Tenzon drops 
Randy on the rail and returns him to the ring. There, Tenzon hits a Samoan drop and a flying headbutt, but he misses a moonsault. Savage then attempts an apron suplex and drops him on the ropes. He then follows with a flying elbow for the win at 6 minutes 55 seconds, and now we are tied 3-3. Matt, what do you think of this match? They should have called this lim- Limber Up Savage because it's basically his warm-up. That, I was thinking the uh, exact same thing. Get, get some cardio Yeah, because... You know, he was an older guy at this point, and, you know, he'd have some good years ahead of him, but wanted to get him a little bit warmed up, considering his opponent is going to go longer than this at the end of the show. Mm-hmm. It's okay. Uh, I wouldn't call this terrible by any means, but maybe your world, your WCW world champion should have been the last one to go I was thinking, in this tournament. Yeah. yeah, I was thinking that too. And the thing about this match, there wasn't a lot to it, you know, and it's one of those matches where, and it's the kind of match I really don't like, where we have one guy dominating the entire time, and one guy gets three moves in, and he wins. You know, not- oh, so most of Hulk Hogan's win. <laughs> Save it. <laughs> well, most of it's already in the can at this point. <laughs> big, I, let's see. I mean, he has last match in 2011, at least on a big pay-per-view. So he's got, oh, yeah, he's still got another 16 years after this. So oh, I yeah. can't really say that just yet. We got some time. Speaking of time, we got Mean Gene here with Ric Flair, who's wearing a Gold's Gym shirt. And he says he promises to style and profile and tell Sting and Luger that they have to beat the man to be the man. He says he'll also be fresh and reinvigorated. And he says he will be celebrating with Dolly Parton and some other women at, woman at his side as he keeps wooing. And Mean Gene wraps up the segment. Flair promos are always entertaining. Oh, God, yeah. Our next match, Sting versus Kensuke Sasaki. So now, Matt, let's look at the scoreboard. It is now 3-3. So this match is, of course, going to determine the winner, either WCW or NJWP. I wonder who's going to win. <laughs> yeah. Kensuke hits Sting and then rams him into the corner. Sting answers with forearms and hits a stinger splash very early. Sasaki fires back with a face buster and they brawl down to the floor. They fight up at the apron. Kensuke suplexes Sting and gives him a power slam. He follows that with a Northern Lights buster, but he doesn't cover him. Sasaki uses some submissions and he even uses Sting's own Scorpion Deathlock. I don't think, and Shivani calls this out on the broadcast. I don't think I've ever seen Sting in a Scorpion Deathlock. Uh, well, not until he wrestled Bro. I was about ready to say, yeah, until we get to 98. I'm saying at this point, though, 95. Yeah, well, what I like about this era is we're not yet in the period where people just steal finishers yep. for spots and matches. Yes, absolutely. That's a huge pet peeve of mine when we get to the Attitude Era. Holy shit. Oh, I get it, yeah. Every Steve Austin rock match, yeah. <laughs> or, or like, you know, rock choke-slamming Undertaker. Uh-huh. Get the fuck out of here. Sting escapes, but Suzaki continues attacking the leg. Sting rallies with a clothesline and a face buster. He then places Kensuke Sasaki in the Scorpion Deathlog and moves him to the middle of the ring. Sasaki has no choice but to submit at 6 minutes 52 seconds, and WCW wins 4-3. to three. Short match for a final match, I guess. But again, we got to save Sting, right? Because he's going to be in the final match of the night, or it's second the same, to the final it's match. The same, yeah, it's the same thing you were complaining about in the Savage match, where one guy gets the crap kicked out of him mm-hmm. for most of it. And this one, it's even—it's a little bit more justified because a submission can come out of nowhere. And I, I give a little bit more of a pass for someone to win by submission if they're getting beat up for most of the match because all it takes is one hold. Yeah, but it's—it's it's still the same thing. Uh, and to do it two matches in a row, I thought was going back to the well. I agree with that. 
especially since, again, we're saving these guys for the end. And we'll get to that when we get to it. But we're thinking about Kensuke Sasaki. So he is the U.S. champion in this match. And he beat Sting for that belt. He beat Sting for that belt. So this is kind of Sting's revenge. But the way he loses it is in a dark match against the one-man gang. <laughs> WCW. Oh, well, let's not forget the year before. Diesel won the fucking title on a house show. Very true. I'm not saying that it's bad form or whatever. What I'm saying is just using it for the one-man gang is <laughs> very weird. Yeah, that's like, where did that come from? Exactly. Yeah, that's all I'm saying. No, no, no. I agree with drumming up some interest any way you can if it's not shown on TV. That's fine. It's just the way the, who they do it for is very weird. What's also very weird, Matt, is the in-ring celebration because we have Randy Savage, Eddie Guerrero, Chris Benoit, Alex Wright, Johnny B. Bad, and yes, even Lex Luger joining Sting for this celebration. I always find it weird. You know, we're going to see this again in a Starcade a few years from now. Everybody comes in on the celebration. I get that Starcade. I don't know if I get this. It's just we got to put Sting on a pedestal here, don't we? I guess. Yeah. All right. So we're recapping all that led to the triangle match coming up. A match that for the life of me, I don't understand. <laughs> it's so weird. So Randy Savage is the champion of World War Three, as we discussed a few weeks ago. And... Now, they're not sure if he's champion, so we have to have this match. And, of course, Sting's hatred for Flair is what leads him into it. I don't know. What, what do you think about this concept? Did you understand it? It felt like a dusty concept. Well, it's a number, number one contender match. But why would you not have Hogan in this if he had had that whole bitching session at the end of the match? Yeah, exactly. Uh, at the end of World War Three, so it do- doesn't make any sense that Hogan's not on this show. I think he was... Was he shooting a movie? It was either that, or they had to pay him for a certain amount of pay-per-view appearances, and they just decided not to use him for this one. Which, if you have the granddaddy of them all pay-per-views, why not use him? It's weird to do a number one contender match and then have the main, have them wrestle the match for the title on the same show. Typically, you know, your biggest show of the year, you should know what your top title match is going to be going into it. I guess you could argue this was kind of the first time they had done it, at least I can think, on a Starcade. But b- between this and... What happens next, it's a very odd way that that it's structured. As is the fact that this is not a traditional triple threat match where all three guys are in the ring at the same time. That's exactly it. Why would you tag out? Exactly. And why would you why would you go the the ropes of the turnbuckle? Just stay in the middle of the ring. That's your best chance. Exactly. That's so stupid. So... The match is a triangle match. We have number one contender triangle match with Ric Flair, Lex Luger, and Sting. Sting teases a Scorpion Deathlock early before making Flair regroup. He observes many of Flair's attacks, so Flair retreats. Flair then taunts Luger to cause a ref distraction. And then Flair attacks Sting's leg and makes numerous pin attempts. Sting rallies and lands a superplex, but Luger tries stopping the count. Sting questions what the hell Lex is doing. Lex uses the opening to tag himself into the match. He puts Flair on the run again until Flair gets some cheap shots and ref distractions. He also attacks Luger's leg and hits it with a chair, but Luger fights back and slams Flair off the top rope, and Flair's had enough, so he tags Sting and makes him fight Luger. Again, why? (laughs) They feel each other out, and they get a test of strength, but Luger kicks Sting. 
They then take turns ramming each other into the turnbuckles. Both men are also trading clotheslines before Luger begins choking him. Luger's cheap tactics are surprising the commentators. At this point, the commentators are like, would you do this to your friend? <laughs> like, Matt, you and I, we're best friends. Yeah, friend yeah, friended quotes. Exactly. Matt, you and I, we're best friends. Like, I don't know. I don't know if I could <laughs> take you down and choke you out. <laughs> it's just weird. I don't know. Your wedding's coming up. <laughs> He even hits Sting with a low blow to prevent a scorpion deathlock. They fight back and forth until Sting misses a stinger splash. Luger puts him in the torture rack, but Sting's foot clips the referee. Flair uses its opening to attack both of them and dump them over the ropes. He revives the ref and tells him to count them out. Sting, Somehow this was strong enough to count both Sting and Luger out. I don't get it. I mean, if they want to use Sting being in a seven-minute match before to kind of – that he's already worn out, I get. But Luger fought a six-minute match an hour before this. It makes no sense that this is what keeps them out. And you had a reprieve by celebrating him winning for WCW. Exactly. God, this is such a – this is such a – bullshit finish it's a clusterfuck um, dude yeah like and it, it makes both guys look weak that they couldn't get back in the ring it's not like they took that much punishment yeah you know it's not like they wrestled 20 minute matches before this they wrestled like six minute matches mm -hmm. and this went way too long wait yeah. there's way too much stalling mm -hmm. a lot of rest holds yeah they could have they could have taken yeah, 10 this, minutes off this easy oh yeah and add it to the actual main event i mean i liked it even though I didn't really understand it, I, I enjoyed it. I liked what they did with the Sting Luger storyline. I know you're not a fan of it, but I, I did like the intrigue they added to it by having these guys fight each other like this. But you're right. This could have been shorter. 28 minutes, 3 seconds is way too long for this, especially for Flair to win by countout. And what is it with Nick, Nick Patrick and bullshit so after this match, Luger's claiming that he was asking Sting for help, and Lex says that he has hurt his knee, and Sting's not buying it. He looks at Luger with disappointment. Yet here's Jimmy Hart. Again, I can understand him earlier in the card, Matt, but here he is in the main event talking to Flair. These two factions fucking hate each other. What the hell is going on? Yeah, it's like it's like they forgot what to do since Hogan's not on the show. It's like they have to pause the status quo. <laughs> A couple more things in my notes. Again, I love pointing out highlights of Sting of uh, Dusty Rhodes' commentary. Like here, he doesn't understand playing possum, so he says, "I'm a possum. I'm a possum." <laughs> and when Tony Schiavone says "rush of adrenaline," Dusty Rhodes hears it as "Russian adrenaline." <laughs> Just fantastic stuff. All right, so now we're gearing up. We have the main event, which is Ric Flair with Jimmy Hart, apparently, versus Macho Man Randy Savage. Savage surprises Flair with a backslide before they trade chops and punches. They fight back and forth until Savage whips Flair into a Flair flip, but Flair punches Savage on a flying axe handle attempt. He then rams Savage into the rail and Jimmy Hart attacks Randy while Rick focuses his offense on Savage's injured arm. Remember that injured arm from last event, Matt? <laughs> finally... It's, come, it's come back into play finally. Finally. Savage attacks with more punches, but Flair grabs a sleeper hold. Savage breaks free and rallies until Jimmy Hart distracts the referee. He throws a megaphone to Flair, only for Savage to intercept it. He clocks Ric Flair with it, and then we see Savage just blade Flair, and Flair is bleeding profusely. And if you're smart to wrestling, Matt, you can see him do that, can't you? 
Oh, yeah, you can see the, the gig job. Uh-huh. And this was like a hard no-no at the time in WCW. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But he's Ric Flair and can do whatever he wants. <laughs> Precisely. Savage hits the flying elbow, but here comes Brian Pillman and Chris Benoit. Randy throws Pillman into Benoit, but Arn Anderson enters the ring and punches Savage with some brass knuckles. And Flair covers him for the win at 8 minutes, 41 seconds. Your new champion, Nature Boy Ric Flair. Matt, we've seen some Flair-Savage matches up to this point. What do you think of this one? I mean, considering that Flair had just wrestled for 30 minutes, this was okay. But it's really weird for an eight-minute match how slow it gets for the last few minutes. Yeah. That kind of hurts. It's also weird that your biggest show of the year ends with the heel cheating to win. Yep. Not, not saying you, you should always have your baby face go out on top, but this was kind of shocking. And it makes Savage look incredibly weak. You know, he wins the title through controversial means, is undermined by Hogan. Granted, it takes three other people for him to lose the flair, but he was not booked strongly whatsoever. I agree with that. Let's save that conversation for WrestleMania 2000. Uh- <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's there was a precedent. There was. I kind of like this, but you got to say that at this point, we have this big event, but we're also going for TV ratings. So, And we even have Heenan saying, you know, what's going to happen on Nitro tomorrow? Like, they are more geared at this point to raising that rating than actually closing out a show. And that's what bothers me about this. But other than that, you know, I didn't have too big a problem with the way this ended, especially if you're having the horsemen do what they've done for the last 10 years, which has helped Flair win by cheating. All right, so that ends Starcade 95, sir. What was your highlight, and what was your low light of this show? I would say the highlight is the Guerrero match, and the low light was that Lex Luger promo <laughs> early on in the show. So collectively, after a couple you know, subpar shows, to be kind, this was a welcome relief. You know, for your biggest show of the year, it did feel like you know it was a good production. I thought, for the lack of investment that a lot of people would have in this tournament, you know, most of the matches were pretty good. Uh, Your top WCW stars, Luger, Sting, Flair, uh, Savage, crowd was into all of them. I I think the the last couple of matches, it's just just odd. I thought the triangle match went way too long, as I've already mentioned. But considering the last few Starcades that we've had before this, I thought this was a... It was a solid way to close out the year. It left you wondering what's Hogan going to do when he comes back, especially with Flair as champion. But it was just not a flat finish, because that's not correct. But it was a peculiar choice to take the belt off Savage so quickly and in that manner. So I'm going to give this a very solid 7 on 10 as an overall show. 7 on 10. Interesting. You know, I remember this event being worse than it actually was. I even built it up in the last, at the end of the last wrestling podcast we did, Matt, as saying, you know, I I don't know if we're getting good here. But I got to say, the previous year wasn't too good. The year before that, though, with Flair Vader is awesome. I, I love that Starcade. It's a, it's a sentimental favorite of mine. But getting to back to '95, I think the Aguero match was awesome. Um, my bad, my low light. God, you hit on it, but that triangle match—it was just way too long. I get the story I was trying to tell, but it just wasn't efficient enough in that storytelling and the concept. I'm not a big fan of these outside factions versus WCW until we get to the NWO, which I think at least for the first year or six months or so is solidly told. This concept, I don't think it was built up enough. I don't think there were enough stakes in it. But I still think this was a much 
better show than I was expecting. And I have the same score written down as well. I have a 7 out of 10. I just think this was a pretty good show that is worthy being in the Starcade Pantheon. And again, that's not what I remembered. And does it have something to do with Hogan not being at there at the event? Maybe. You know, he's not here facing his friends. He's not here to Hogan it up, as they would say. This is kind of going back to 94 WCW when it was good before Hogan, where, you know, you had Flair versus Steamboat in a tremendous match at the event before Hogan arrived and stuff like that. It kind of went back to those days, and it was refreshing to me. So, yeah, it's definitely a solid 7 out of 10 for me. All right, Matt, that closes out 95. Finally, next week, we get to our first event of 1996, the Royal Rumble on the WWF side. My friend, what do you remember about next week's event? I, re- I remember the the bulk of what happens, but I don't have a whole lot of familiarity with the matches themselves. Like, I know what they are, but couldn't tell you details about them. So I know it's kicking off a year that saw a lot of change throughout not just this company, but both three, if you want to count ECW. Uh, so I'm curious to go into this because, you know, Late 95 at WWF, in fact, 95 in general, you could argue was a down year. So they, they had some ground to make up. And the Royal Rumble is definitely a good place to start. And we'll get into our feelings on that event as a whole because it will be the first Royal Rumble we'll be covering next week. But I am the same as you. I remember small things about it. I did see it live. Me and Adam, I believe, watched it with our friend Omar at the time. And uh, I have things about that that we'll get into when we talk about it. But, yeah, it's definitely going to be fun to go to our first Royal Rumble together and talk about that event. But until next week when we talk Royal Rumble 96, Matt, I'll see you at the matches. 